Do you collect Doctor Who? With over a hundred Target books stacked up, you are definitely a Doctor Who collector. For all things in the Doctor Who collecting world, tune in to the Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, a Direction Point Network podcast. I am Larry Van Mersbergen, your host, and I have been collecting Doctor Who, including Target books, for 40 years. With popular features like collection protection and the most outrageous offer, you can learn a lot about Doctor Who collecting. Available anywhere you get your podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hi, I'm Juliet. And I'm Nathan. Experience Doctor Who from the very beginning through a classic fan's eyes. And through the eyes of a new Who fan. Reminisce and relive those classic moments with Nathan as he offers fun insight. Or experience them for the first time with Juliet as she dwells on social issues, history, fashion, and the size of a flashlight. We're the Time Streams Podcast. Find us on Spotify, Stitcher, or Apple Podcasts. You're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club. Enjoy your travels. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Wendy Padbury, and you're listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club podcast. Enjoy your travels. Hello fellow time travelers and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the predestined task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations because it was destined that we would come to this spot eventually. God help us. (laughs) My name is Tony Witt and today we have a hard to predict three person discussion panel, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, that would be me. There's our intermediate-level casual fan who's seen several episodes, has not previously read any of the books until these podcasts, and this time it's the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello! And finally, we have our semi-novice fan, one who's seen little to none of the original series and has not previously read any of the books except for the ones we've done for this podcast, and this time around it's the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. If you like what you're hearing, please check out our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you'll receive, among other possible goodies, mugs and t-shirts with our logos on them, just like giving to PBS, but not a Target book, since we know you have so many of those, you've buried them in an underground bunker safe from both Daleks and Mavellans, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air. And as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, The Video Junkyard Podcast, The Doctor Who Collectors Podcast, Hans Wax, Stephen Pickering, James Sonnall, Dave Davis, and Simon Painter. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. We also have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash y7kmaspr. In fact, we expect you to. We now begin a new season with our discussion of Terence Dick's novelization of Terry Nation's script for Destiny of the Daleks. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who and the Destiny of the Daleks, adapted by Terrence Dix from the script by Terry Nation that aired from 9-1-79 to 9-22-79, published by Target Books in November 1979. As of this recording in January of 2022, this title is currently out of print, 127 pages. First of all, This book was published only two months after it aired on television, Mm. so it's one of the quickest to follow its on-screen transmission. In fact, woe be on to any kids who were reading these in publication order and had not seen the end of the Key to Time season the year before, because uh, the last four of those books were not published until the spring and summer of 1980, and this book gives away the ending to a story that hasn't been novelized yet. This book was also translated into German in 1990 for some reason. It doesn't have an audiobook, but there was a soundtrack released in 2019 with linking narration by Lala Ward, so there's that. 
There are three major roles that are recast this season, speaking of Lala Ward, <laughs> that we won't hear the new K-9 until the next story. He's not in this story because the production team didn't want to deal with the location nightmares they'd had to deal with the prop when filming Stones of Blood, and Terry Nation emphatically did not want to include him in the script. He did not want K-9 anywhere near his Daleks. Nope. Thus, Douglas Adams wrote the scenes in the beginning of the story, which explains quite a bit. Davros in the story is played by David Gooderson after Michael Wisher was unavailable to reprise the role. Problem is, they used the Davros mask that was fitted to Wisher's face five years before, and it doesn't fit very well at all. On top of that, Gooderson appears to have been slightly taller than Wisher, so it's a little more obvious on screen that Gooderson is peddling himself along under the Davros prop skirt. <laughs> so, not a very inspired recasting, to be honest. The other recasting, however, was a bit more inspired. I mentioned last time that we would have occasion to talk about Lala Ward, who played Princess Astra in the last story, and this is why. She's the new Romana. The Honorable Sarah Jill Ward, nicknamed Lala as a baby because she couldn't say Sarah, was born in 1951. She went to drama school in the late 60s and began her acting career in the movie Vampire Circus in 1972 before playing Lottie in The Duchess of Duke Street. She has the unusual distinction of having sued a magazine for running nude photos of her, which were not of her as it turned out, and winning the case. <laughs> so what did she sue for? That they were they were false representations? That they were false representations of her, yes. Because the movie that she was in ended up being redone and recut as a softcore porn. Oh, God. It's, or something like that. And so this magazine ran photos that they said were of her nude bottom. And she sued and somehow proved in court that they were not of her so good for her. Absolutely good for her. But you have to wonder how the arguments went for that one. <laughs> when Mary Tam decided not to return as Romana, and as it turned out, that was a good decision because she ended up being pregnant. So she wasn't able to come back as Romana. She was the one who suggested that Ward replace her. A suggestion that delighted Tom Baker as he'd become very fond of Lala Ward. So much so, in fact, that Tam reportedly spent a lot of the production on the Armageddon Factor keeping him away from her. <laughs> she and Tom Baker would, in fact, marry in December of 1980, though the marriage lasted only 18 months. She became very good friends with Douglas Adams, though, and at his 40th birthday party, she was introduced to a man who would become her second husband and second ex-husband after a marriage of 24 years, the biologist Richard Dawkins, whom you may have heard of before. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. She's attracted some very strong personalities. Yes, she is. More about her post-Doctor Who career later on. Douglas Adams was also responsible for two notorious scenes in the script, both of which caused rumblings in fandom, but for different reasons. Romana's runway regeneration was the first one. <laughs> Adams wanted to spoof previous scenes of the Doctor changing through different outfits by having Romana try on different bodies, apparently without caring about the 12 regeneration limit. It's not even clear he knew about it. The second is the Doctor mocking the Daleks for not being able to climb up after them in episode two. If you're supposed to be the superior race of the universe, why don't you try climbing after us? Bye-bye! Which Terry Nation specifically took umbrage with, claiming it made the Daleks look less menacing. <laughs> Of course, the condition of the few Dalek props used in the story would have done that all by itself, frankly, and the next time they appear, they will be represented by all new models, because the props just look terrible. <laughs> These were some floor samples who were kind of battered <laughs> yeah. during the holiday season. Essentially, they'd, they'd had some terrible wear and tear on them. They hadn't been stored properly. In fact, they were Frankenstein Dalek props because some of them were taken from different molds and such, and they just do not look good. The next time we see the Daleks, they will look pristine and beautiful compared to what they look like in this. 
Did they cover them with that fine dust that the humanoids are described as being covered in? Oh, no. No, they didn't have to. That would be a solution. That would be clever. Powdered Daleks. I think they were probably covered with that dust to begin with because they probably weren't dusted off when they were brought out of storage. This story is also made out of story order. The first two stories produced were The Creature from the Pit and City of Death in that order. So they produced the third story first, the second story second, and this story third. So it's a little weird to see Lala Ward start off so strong as her own Romana and then essentially play a Mary Tam-like version of her two stories later. So we'll, we'll talk about that when we get there. And one other thing, take a moment and do a Google search for Mavellans, and you'll see that Dick's description of them just doesn't do them justice. Nothing screams 1979 like the Mavellans. Is that Rick James? <laughs> yeah, exactly. You you might indeed say that. As a matter of fact, I did a spoof clip of their of their appearance in the new series, but I overlaid it with a funk song. Who are those guys? Give it to me, baby. (laughs) (laughs) This is not at all what I was visualizing. Yeah, that's what the Mavellans look like. So they're a a, a little bit embarrassing on screen. Very 1979. So yeah. Okay, since you all have done (laughs) the last few, like, five or six dramatic readings, I'm going to go ahead and do this one just to give you a break since we're starting a new season. So here we go. Landing on an apparently devastated planet, the Doctor and Romana make a horrifying discovery. The planet is Skaru, homeworld of the Daleks. The Daleks are excavating in order to find and revive Davros, the mad, crippled, scientific genius who first created them. They hope that he will give them the scientific superiority to break the deadlock with their Mavellan enemies. Faced once more with the deadly and seemingly indestructible Daleks, the Doctor's wits and strength are stretched to their very limits. And probably his scarf is too, at some point. <laughs> I, sorry, I had to throw that in there somehow. I have to have some fun. So, Dalton, your first impressions when you were given this? Well, I was excited to have the Daleks back. I feel like it's been a little while. So I was interested to see what kind of mischief... They were up to, especially given uh, the description on the back. <laughs> not re- remember quite the last story, what happened with Davros. I thought he w- had died, but clearly he didn't. Yeah, looking at the the, the cover of the book, looks like the doctor's just uh, given someone a sick burn. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, just kind of interested to see where this one goes, moving on from the Key to Time arc and see what what the new romana is like if if she's different at all yeah okay allison what was your first impression well it's terrence dick's book so most everything interesting is going to be in the first 30 pages and (laughs) the prologue i don't know if it counts as a prologue or not when um romana is doing now i know the runway regeneration scene Uh, i took (laughs) it as a prologue It's not a true Dick's prologue because no one dies um, on a a planet or a ship. So I actually thought that was a tremendously entertaining uh, scene, and that makes sense. I know it's a Douglas Adams scene. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Done entirely for laughs, that scene. And it shows. It really does. However, you can also see Terrence Dick's doing his level best to say, I know that this was written for laughs. I still have to explain why it's here and trying to give some in-universe explanation for why she's able to run through seemingly five regenerations in less than a minute. And it turns out, no, she's just got some stronger control over her regenerative energies than the doctor does because his regenerations have all been very stressful affairs and she's just doing it because she wants a change. Yeah, his are under duress. She's just like, hmm, what's in style now? <laughs> yes, I thought it was delightful just the casualness mm-hmm. compared to, oh, I like the description of his regenerations as being haphazard, a response to crisis, and a potluck. 
Oh, yes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, so much so. Yes, where she's actually able to choose the body she regenerates into. The doctor apparently has never been able to do that. No. Well, you were saying that this book would be confusing to someone who was following the novels but hadn't had opportunity to see the episodes that were the conclusion of the time key story. Mm -hmm. It starts with an introduction to what the TARDIS is, who the doctor is, who canine is, obviously a very quick mm -hmm. one or two sentence explanations. And that you know, says that when the doctor calls Ramana, the person who walks in is not the person he was expecting to see. So I actually thought it was a nice little starting point uh, for a person who hadn't been following that story. And of course, hadn't been following the episodes and didn't know that it, the part had been recast. Right. I, I, I greatly preferred that to what I expected, which was that the books would not at all deal with the fact that it was a different person. Well, I was trying to be very cagey about that because I wasn't sure if either of you knew about the recasting or how they managed it. Were you surprised at all or did were you kind of expecting a regeneration? I thought either she's going to die, she'll be recast... Or Ramana will just be removed from the story. You know, she, she won't be the companion anymore. But I'm I'm glad to see that the character of Ramana is still here, even if it's a different iteration of her. Yeah, it's it's probably the best way they could have handled that. And luckily, they had a time lady companion, so they had that as an option. Oh yeah. Because if this had happened, say when Leela left, for instance, well. They went with a different companion. They would do whatever they normally do when you have a humanoid companion. You just change actresses or actors. But in this case, at least they had that out. And it works out pretty well, as it turns out, because Lala Ward's Romana... I mean, nothing against Mary Tam's Romana. She's amazing. So is Lala Ward's Romana, to the, to the point that she's still playing the part, mm -hmm. even now. So that tells you something. <laughs> I mean, I knew there were two different actors who had sort of full runs as Romana, but I didn't know if it was going to be one after another, or if maybe there would be a different companion and then Romana would come back later. So I, I didn't know, know that it was going to be um, Romana once again. Yeah. Now, fans had some issues <laughs> with that scene. Um, you may have found it delightful. And in fact, Dix appears not to have found it so delightful, given the way he's describing it. But uh, yeah, fans had trouble with it. And so there's been long debates over, well, is she regenerating the whole time? Is she doing this? Is she doing that? And it's... Creating some kind of projection or effect or... Yeah, exactly. And it's I mean, perfectly the, fine. The funniest banter that we've seen between Romana and the Doctor is when he's frustrated that she has more education than he does. <laughs> and... Yes. Even though she doesn't have more lived experience, she has more expertise in some areas and has greater skills training. Mm -hmm. So I thought it was actually a, a, fun, it was a funny scene, the foil for him. You know, as usual, not being able to drive the TARDIS very well. Now he has a really good explanation. He can't <laughs> let anyone know where he's going. He can't control it or they'll be caught. Yeah. You see, we have to do it this way. But I, I thought that that was, that is always the funniest dynamic between them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's and then and with the other side of that is when Romano's doing everything by the book and of course the doctor saves the day with some kind of flying by the seat of his pants strategy. But that's always the entertaining dynamic and I thought that at the beginning the book played that very, very well. Yeah. Even to the point that he tries to get back at her by putting the fear of zombies into her head, which <laughs> is not on screen if I recall. Okay, and it should not work. All right, can I switch over to the complaint section? Yeah, please. Romana is not chicken. No. <laughs> oh, goodness. What all do I have down here? Frozen in terror. Let's see here. Too tired and depressed to notice the figure stalking her. Quote, soon she was dashing straight ahead in a blind panic. End quote. Yeah. Uh, these are all situations in sh which, and I understand it's a new performer, and I, I don't know if they're implying that now there may be some personality changes as well. Not mm -hmm. just a new body, but sort of a a new persona in some ways but these are situations in which even she's afraid she should be also dispassionate and exasperated about it <laughs> yeah mm -hmm. these are not Ramana doesn't freeze with terror and she doesn't stop noticing things even if she is afraid so. and, is and, and yet when she is faced with the Daleks she keeps telling them to shut up and leave her alone <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> that seemed much more like Ramana to yes. be exasperated yeah and it's the exact opposite of what we get on screen <laughs> 
because Lala Ward plays that moment with the Daleks with sheer panic, and she comes across as much more Romana-like on the page, where she's just like, oh my god, let's get this over with, just shut up, leave me alone, let me get out of here. Mm -hmm. uh, that sounds much more like Romana than we've uh, had previously. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And there is a lot of lovely banter between the two of them, like her line about showing up at a party wearing an identical body as someone else. <laughs> yeah, yes. that's that's a Dick's edition. That is not Douglas Adams, believe it or not. Well, and kind of a dark joke in some ways, too. Like, well, you know, Astra actually, you know, lost her human body or humanoid body for a while. It was nice she kind of got it back and didn't have to live as a box part eternally. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. But you don't have to have read that story to be able to follow it. <laughs> True. Now, well, we might as well talk about the Khaled mutant in the room, which is Davros, because he is back for this one. What did we think about going back to Skaro and revisiting Genesis of the Daleks and all of that goings on? I enjoyed seeing the Doctor have like a war of wits with Davros. Basically, them kind of trying to outwit each other the whole time. And ultimately, of course, the Doctor ends up being victorious. But we don't know what happens once uh, Davros leaves the planet. So funny to have the doctor disrespecting Davros so flippantly. <laughs> you, know, you, you be quiet or I'll switch you off. And, oh, and similar. it's worse on screen. <laughs> It's much worse on screen because this is the season where Tom Baker is playing the Doctor as Tom Baker more than as the Doctor. And his exchanges with, with Davros are, are some of them. At one point when Davros says, I cannot afford the luxury of death, you can hear Tom Baker off camera going, oh, poor Davros. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> oh God. Yeah. I mean, on the page, it actually seemed funny. Is it cringy on screen? Oh, it, it is a little bit. It is a little bit. You can tell that Tom Baker is more interested in undercutting things with comedy. Now, he does do some things a little more seriously, but not many. The Doctor is much more serious on the page here. For mm -hmm. example, that sequence where he puts the bomb down Davros's chair and is going to trigger it remotely. Yes. And he has that moment of hesitation, and it turns out to be a moment of hesitation that allows Davros to survive, because the Daleks are able to get it out. But on the, on the page, Dix has the Doctor thinking, should I really do this? Well, I had a chance to kill them before, and I didn't take it. I've got to do this, even though I really don't want to. Tom Baker... Butcher that he is, <laughs> simply gets in the shot and pulls that sonic screwdriver down. So, yeah, there's none of that reflection. There's none of this whole situation is my fault. I could have done something about it. That never comes through on screen. He could have done something about it, and yet even still he can do something about it, and he still is worried if it's the right decision. <laughs> yes, exactly. And unless Tom Baker is kind of told in the script that he needs to do that, he's not going to do that anymore, which really is a shame. Mm. I, I much prefer that scene on the page because Terrence Dix is doing something with it. <laughs> the Daleks, did you notice something about the way they're depicted in the story? On the page, there's something distinctive about the way they're... Uh, depicted they desire human ingenuity or humanoid ingenuity organic ingenuity something along those lines yes it's not something i think we've seen them pursue before we've seen them pursue perfection through greater logic and cruelty maybe i i think i'm kind of whiffing it here okay <laughs> dalton to me the daleks are very succinct usually when they're talking or whatever and it felt like they were maybe their leader was a, a little more long-winded than i'm used to <laughs> which may or may not have to do with anything i don't know but it it just felt like it wasn't as like cold and i know they're not robots but robotic <laughs> that i mm -hmm. that i'm used to it felt like they were they were more kind of uh, desperate yeah and that's the big debate over this story, that Terry Nation appears quite often to have forgotten that the Daleks are not robots. And it comes up again and again in the script. And you can see Terrence Dix struggling with that. Okay, that makes sense, because he, a couple of times, 
points out, well, they're descended from this organic species. Mm -hmm. Yes. They do have this organic component. I didn't realize that he was fighting the TV script. That makes sense. Because they do talk about a sort of a robot-on-robot conflict. And we're thinking, that's kind of an odd way to think of it, but... Yeah, yeah, because it's definitely not robot-on-robot, because, Mm -hmm. well, for one thing, that would be a very odd porn movie, and for another, it just... That isn't what it is. The moments where you have the Doctor and Romana both saying they descended from Khaled's, that they're mutations, they start off humanoid themselves, they're in the script, but they seem to have been forgotten. There's this idea that the Daleks have grown so dependent on their computers that they've become little better than robots. In fact, that's the best wording for it. Dix is responsible for that wording. Mm. Little better than robots. Whereas there are moments on screen where you think, oh no, this is a robot versus robot thing. And it's like, no, no, it isn't. The Daleks shouldn't be in this position. Especially, and listeners will probably have watched this recently, because Doctor Who, The Evil of the Daleks, was released in the last several months as an animation. And that shows what the Daleks are capable of. You will take the Dalek factor. You will spread it through the entire history of They do not need someone coming in and reprogramming their computers. They are geniuses. They are manipulative. They understand how to manipulate humans. They know what they're doing. They, they know how to fight wars. They don't need Davros. And one of the things about this is that it keeps talking about how the Doctor failed during Genesis of the Daleks, but there's also the possibility that he succeeded in one way. They are a lot weaker now than they ever were before Davros came along. But I'm afraid I've only delayed them for a short time, perhaps a thousand years. Time scale, no more than that. Yeah, so he he did something. He made them more dependent on Davros because, spoiler alert, Davros is going to be in every single Dalek story that we see for the rest of the classic series. Okay. Wait, say that again. Davros will be in every single Dalek story that we get for the rest of the classic series. I missed the key word. I thought you said Davros would be in every single story. Yes. Well, no, every single Dalek story. Every Dalek story. Yes, yes. Important, yes. Yeah. There will be... I'm counting on my fingers. One, two, three. There are three more of them in the classic series. He's going to be part of each of them. Okay. And, well, Davros is a pretty decent character in his own right, but having a Dalek story always have to have him in it kind of weakens them as villains. That's much worse than saying, oh, why don't you come up after us if you're the most dangerous species in the universe or the superior life forms in the universe? That's more of a menace-killing thing that they're dependent on him. So... Which is it? Is it that the Doctor actually succeeded in his mission in Genesis of the Daleks enough that the Daleks are so weak that they have to have Davros because they're no better than robots at this point? Or is it just that Terry Nation forgot what he was doing (laughs) (laughs) and depicted them as robots? But isn't he the creator of the Daleks? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Hmm. Well, because the thing that I kind of liked and didn't like about the story is the idea that if you have two combatant camps where they both have perfect logic and they have access to mostly the same information, they will fight to a stalemate. But it didn't make sense with these characters. Like that's that should be a Cybermen or Machine Men story, yeah. maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We could see the Cybermen hitting that impasse point with a race like the Mavellans. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense for the Daleks to hit that point. There's a part where they talk about taking Davros to the Supreme, the Dalek Supreme, and basically being what will what will the Dalek Supreme do with him? Um, they talk about an information sphere that was prepared for the Supreme Dalek, and Davros says that he'll dispute that claim as soon as he gets back to wherever they are. But that's essentially it. Yeah. There's no indication here that the Daleks are likely to turn against Davros. <laughs> they need him at this point more than they've ever needed him. Later stories, uh, it's a little trickier. 
there's still a little bit of that need, but the, the Daleks themselves get a lot stronger than they are in the story. They're basically secondary characters in their own story here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And to bring in the Mavellans... Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I thought my audio went out, but you were just lost in a reverie about disappointment of the Mavellans. <laughs> I, I, I was, mainly because there is someone who has written some of the novelizations that we've read in the past, who, in one of the BBC books, which are thankfully not considered canon, I can't believe I'm going into this, has an explanation for the existence of the Mavellans that is specifically meant to reverse something that the classic series done, does to the Daleks which throws the lie at this whole story. Let's just say that. So the Mavellans only appear once more, and that's in the new series, and that's in a very brief scene, which is just hilarious. Or at least I find it is. <laughs> they do appear in a BBC book, but they are very different in that BBC book. And the reason is because they've got this convoluted story for why they exist. And yeah as much of a mess as this story is that makes it even messier so i prefer not to think of it in those terms nothing against this writer's other works because i love his other works but that one yeah i've already said too much i really have i didn't foresee that the mavellans would turn out to be robotic really and i I, apparently i wasn't paying attention um, and that they would be conducting surveillance through Agella's eyes. I, I didn't expect that. And then I thought it would turn out to be more interesting than it did. Yeah, it should have. Except, here's the question. Why do they bother to hide it? I, maybe something along the lines of they've learned that it uh, creeps out humanoids. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Hey, they, they want to interrogate the humanoids, um, not necessarily in a bare light bulb, beating them with objects way, but they want to harvest information from humanoids. It would make sense that they found in the past that humanoids don't necessarily respond well to finding that they are interacting with purely synthetic intelligence. Mm. Why even trouble them with the knowledge? It would would seem to make sense, but I'm going beyond what the story bothered to do. Well, and also right. the fact that they can be taken out so easily. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, because they have have these metallic kinder eggs essentially <laughs> stuck to their sides yeah. that you can somehow <laughs> knock off and then reprogram. They're, it's, a, it's a bit of a design flaw. Well, yeah. but they have the benefit that they are able to conduct surveillance through what appear to be biological body parts. So that can be an advantage if, if other species don't know that they can do that and that they don't necessarily have the biological vulnerabilities i mean it's like you know superman you know he's vulnerable to to none of the usual human things but to some things that humans are not um they're not i guess if they appear to be humanoids one could attack them as one would attack the body of humanoids Mm -hmm. uh if you were trying to attack a humanoid you wouldn't be trying to shoot the objects off their belt first yeah that's that that is true that is true at least when I attack humanoids, that's not where I start. Well, I should hope not. <laughs> I mean, it would certainly be below the belt, but not on the belt. But, <laughs> but yeah, something interesting about that, and I'm glad you brought that up, because there's a line in which the doctor says, I saw that her uh, Agella's hand was regenerating, and humans don't tend to heal up that quickly, and you don't get that line on screen. Mm-hmm. You just get the sense that he touched her hand and realized, oh, she was never a warm and human to begin with. She's just a I was robot. curious if we got yeah. the visual on screen. Well, you get the visual on screen, yes. Surprisingly. Yeah. Because having just drawn so much attention to the fact that Romana regenerates, I would think that on screen that would have been an indication that they are some sort of time lords gone bad. Or oh, you don't get the visual of her hand regenerating, no. Her hand is sticking up through the rubble. That's all you got. Okay. Yeah. And the doctor touches it and looks up at Romana and says, Romana, I was right. And you don't get an explanation of that until later in the story, whereas here, and that's probably why you couldn't see it immediately, Allison, because Dix is still putting the clues in, but he's being really much more subtle about it than the televised story is. Yeah. Much more subtle. I mean, we still don't really know anything's up until the the commander is seeing things through her eyes. And then it's like, oh, wait what yeah yeah that's one of those moments where you're like wait a minute 
Isn't that what Agello would have been seeing? And that's your first indication. Yeah, before it's confirmed, confirmed. Yeah. Whereas on screen, you don't really get that confirmation until they somehow have that picture of Davros and Romana says, where did you get that? <laughs> How do you have that? Were you looking it up in intergalactic Wikipedia or something? But no. Yeah, it... <sighs> that one's... God, I just don't know. There's also this sense that the Daleks must be weaker if instead of conquering planets, what they're essentially doing is they're fought to a standstill by another robotic race. And I put emphasis on another because they themselves are not robots. Robotic is fair, though. Yeah, they're I not guess. robots. They're robotic. Robotish, maybe. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but they're going around and kidnapping humans and just using them as slave labor. Kind of like they did in Day of the Daleks, but that's only because they were on Earth, and what else were they going to use humans for? Yeah, they're basically scavenging in deep space. <laughs> yeah, they're not the dangerous creatures that they used to be. So, I think that's a lot of it right there. So, the basic premise of this whole story is either fridge logic brilliance, or it makes no goddamn sense. I'm going to go with the latter. Okay. That it makes no goddamn sense. I, well, I, I, brilliance is out of the question. Mm, yeah. Agreed. It, it's kind of, you know, accidental brilliance if it is that. Because we're having to make excuses. We're having to say, oh, the Doctor's mission in Genesis must have worked out the way he hoped it would, which is something changed. It certainly did. But it's more the Terry Nation has said, oh, let's make them robot on robot action uh, here's something i did not entirely understand how was davros revived once he was located ah uh, i'm not sure because it's almost like an alarm clock goes off as soon as other sentient beings are around him his his chair systems decide oh it's time to wake up it, yeah it doesn't make a lot of sense does it it that happens to be an episode cliffhanger by the way it's like, oh my god, they found his body. Oh my god, he's alive. From my understanding, it made it out to be he didn't die in the first place. He basically right. went into power save mode. <laughs> and then they tripped the motion detector or rattled the mouse? Yeah. Yep, exactly. Pretty pretty okay. much Allison. Out of the sleep yep. mode. Yeah, and that it would take other humanoids to do it, not Daleks, because... Mm. Well, but I guess the Daleks it would take already anybody. had oh, their humanoids around, though. They had other enslaved humanoids. Well, here's the thing. At the end of Genesis of the Daleks, the only creatures still alive in that bunker are the Daleks. And they eventually get out, and they leave Davros behind, presumably. Though, yeah. that's kind of interesting itself. You'd think that they would yeah. take him along, but no, I guess not. Well, I didn't remember how he was betrayed if the Daleks who knew he was still there were the ones had betrayed him i didn't remember enough of the details of that story. well remember that in genesis of the daleks the daleks turn against him because they decide that they are superior even to him and that they can basically chart their own course which <laughs> in the uncorrupted timeline they absolutely do and there's some headcanon among fans that that dalek that says that it gave the command ends up becoming the emperor dalek and there's a lot to go with hmm. that particular fan theory. It makes sense that the first forward-thinking Dalek that can actually make its own decisions would naturally go on to become the superior Dalek. If that's the case, then that Dalek knows exactly where to find Davros. Mm -hmm. hmm. And they originated on Scaro, so of course they would know. This obviously ignores the fact that previously, <laughs> in Evil of the Daleks, which I mentioned just a little, uh, little bit ago, they're still on Skaro. That's their home planet. That is the seat of their power. And in later stories, it's going to be that too. So it's like, okay, when did the Daleks leave Skaro? Why did they decide to move back? When did they take out the Thals who are presumably still living there? Or the Thal survivors, I should say. When did the Thals leave? Dalek timelines are just a mess. And it makes sense if the Time Lords have been messing with them. Mm -hmm. So yeah, again, fridge logic brilliance. But was it all planned? 
Hell no. <laughs> they just got lucky. They really just got lucky. It is more possible for us to come up with a more interesting story than what we actually get on screen. <laughs> yeah. Oh. And unlike last time, I don't have any theories. My, my brain didn't even try to come up with anything better. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't interested enough to, to try to generate... And that's the sad part, isn't it? This is a Dalek story. We should be, as Dalton said, he was excited to see what the Daleks were up to, what shenanigans they were doing these days. Yeah. And it's like, no, no. They missed their dad. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. That would have been a little more touching and interesting, though. Yeah. If they actually had sort of an emotional response to missing him, to wanting his approval. Yes. To wanting to have him witness them pulling off a great victory without him, or wanting to have him with them for a great victory, but yeah. he didn't have any of those components. Well, it's implied that they've moved beyond that, and you can kind of see that too. He always wanted them to be dispassionate creatures only driven by hatred. Which is why I actually expected them to double cross him to for them to we we see them we see Davros barking orders at the Daleks and them generally complying. I thought that they would have the old man effectively crated up in some way, uh, in that they decided that they needed him, but they also had a plan for keeping him contained and perhaps disposing of him at, once he had fulfilled his function and we didn't go there either oh yeah if this story had taken place in the 60s they absolutely would have done that yeah and they would do it in the new series too Mm. but here no in fact the doctor has a line and you can see terrence dicks trying to make this work in chapter 13 he's saying that's why the daleks came back for you they remembered they'd once been organic creatures themselves capable of intuitive irrational emotional thought they wanted you to give those qualities back to them to get them out of their logical trap well they never had that problem before so yeah now they do i almost wish it would have been something like this whole time davros had been in this bunker doing something to foil the daleks himself or like, yeah. or like he was the person who created the Mavellans. He created, a, 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 you know, he created another race or, you know, another species that would battle them because of their betrayal to him. Yeah, that would have, that would have been a lot more interesting, I would say. There think. you go. I came up with it on the fly. Um. There you go. And it's a good one. I, I would much rather have seen that story. Yeah. Because we don't get any explanation of where the Mavellans come from why they're the way they are or why the Daleks are their sworn enemies until that later book, which I'd rather not think about (laughs) (laughs) because it's even more convoluted than this. Well, what did we like? Because it sounds like we didn't much care for the basic story if we're trying to rewrite it every five seconds. (laughs) Well, I appreciated that Dix didn't try to make it too epic and operatic beyond what the story itself would bear. And I was curious how the the following unfolded on scene. I actually, I like the sequence where Roman is told by one of the prisoners that the only way to leave is basically in a coffin. Yeah. You only leave when you're dead. We're told that she has this thought in her mind that the only way to escape is when you're dead. Then the very next paragraph cuts to Tissen, who escaped. And then we see her pretending to be dead. And I thought that was a very nice sequence. Yeah, um, that I have to admit that's something. Uh, overall, this story plays better on the page than on screen. Tyson, in particular, Terrence Dix makes him a much stronger and better character because the actor who plays Tyson on screen is just a drip. <laughs> He's terrible, absolutely terrible. But you're right, especially when the whole thing about when he first encounters Romana, and she says, oh, I I was taught how to stop my hearts in school, because obviously that's a skill anyone needs. (laughs) Right. And Tyson says, how many hearts have you got? And she says, one for casual and one for best. And (laughs) that's just a lovely Romana moment. But yeah. Well, I feel like that's when she starts exhibiting more Romana-like behavior in the story. Yes. Before, we're told that she's terrified, she's depressive, etc. 
we're told that she's thinking about you only leave when you're dead. Oh, that made more sense to me of what we've seen from the character before, that she would be thinking about that, not because she was depressive about it or suicidal about it, but because she was thinking about the usefulness of that information. Yeah. yeah. And I felt like yeah. we saw a better version of her thereafter, other than, I, th I don't remember this is a reference to I have written down, Romana isn't flattered by attention and does not gush. <laughs> that That is true. However... She does work out pretty well in the story, and Dix makes some good use of her on the page because the first view that we have of Davros is through Romana's eyes in chapter 7. Mm. He, he's described to us through her eyes, so at first you're like, what is she seeing? Oh mm -hmm. my god, she's seeing Davros, because the doctor suspects it. But he, he keeps saying, I hope I'm wrong. Unfortunately, I never am, so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like, God, how modest of you, Doctor, yes. Dix also makes their relationship a lot warmer. I mean, it's pretty warm on screen because, you know, Tom Baker's falling in love with her and all that. But mm -hmm. that whole business of, isn't it time you took some more of those pills? I've already had six. I'm, I'm all right now, Doctor, honestly. Well, I hope so. You gave me a nasty turn up there, you and your burial mound. You and your erection. And she's pleased that he's concerned about her, which is just a lovely little moment. Yeah, the emotion he shows whenever he sees that second burial mound and it kind of dawns on him, oh crap, that could be Romana. It's mm -hmm. it's it's lovely. It's it, it shows more care for her than I feel like we got in any of the previous season. Yeah, exactly. And the fact that she's the one that takes out Cheryl. And I don't mean Cheryl from Archer. I mean Commander Cheryl. <laughs> <laughs> that she's the one who fights with him to keep him from letting off the Nova device. Yeah. Which she was almost killed by in a very, you know, damsel in distress kind of way. And there's this weird reversal of it because she's almost killed by it again, but she manages to keep him from setting it off. And on screen, that well-placed kick of hers knocks his arm off. <laughs> it's hilarious. I love it. <sighs> you almost expect her to start beating him to death with his arm at that point but uh <laughs> yeah to see lala ward wrestling with one of the villains is like i can't see mary tan being that physical and getting into fisticuffs with anybody she never does it again of course but well i was going to say so is there a different personality with this romana yes you still see that there's that basic Romana Ness, the same way there's always a basic Doctor Ness whenever he regenerates. Mm -hmm. She's still smarter than thou. <laughs> <laughs> she still doesn't suffer the Doctor's foolishness very gladly, though she's much more willing in this incarnation to put up with it and be a party to it. She's just as willing to crack jokes as he is. Mm. She also is much more practical than the first Romana. I mean, the first hmm. Romana can still do things like rebuild something out of scratch or whatever, but she's still got that kind of wide-eyed innocence. The second Romana doesn't have the wide-eyed innocence quite so much. She can still be fooled, but not nearly as much as the first Romana could be. Well, and I go back and forth between saying, oh, Romana wouldn't say this, she wouldn't do that, and thinking, well, it recast it's a regeneration she can be different i guess i didn't like the parts where she was especially afraid and depressive because relative to things that we have seen romana go through it's actually not that bad right not that scary compared to other things we've seen this very individual endure exactly and part of that i i hate to say this part of this may be a function of terence dix simply not having seen those scripts yet Mm. Though I, he knows the ending of the key to time, so I don't know if he's writing this having already gotten those scripts. I mean, it's not horrible. It's just the usual screaming lady companion stuff. Yeah, yeah I was kind of conflicted because, yeah, on the one hand, we do have Romana kind of like playing the hero role for half of the story. And for half of the story, we have her being the damsel in distress. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's a problem to have her be terrified and afraid, but we've seen that this character would need either greater stimulus or a stimulus to which she was more personally vulnerable. Yeah, yeah, agreed. And she is kind of a female doctor in this. And if you, <laughs> when you watch that sequence where she's going through the regenerations, when she comes out into the console room and says, how about this? She's wearing the doctor's outfit. <laughs> yes, I love yes. that. <laughs> 
Now that's a good looking outfit, finally. <laughs> yes, but then when she comes back, she's wearing a pink long coat and a white scarf. And it is the cutest thing. If that had ended up being her costume for the rest of the series, I would have been happy. Because that's exactly, you know, if you think female doctor, that may have been, before we got Jodie Whittaker, that may have been what you'd imagine a female doctor mm -hmm. wearing. So she's kind of a version of the doctor in the story. And there's a, there's a later story, which is not well regarded, but I think it's a very strong Romana story because she essentially becomes the Doctor for almost a full episode. And she's great. She's absolutely wonderful at it. And a lot of that is the strength of Lala Ward's performance because she is not going to play Damsel in Distress even when she's playing Damsel in Distress. It's kind of interesting the way that works. Hmm. The original Manic Pixie Dream Girl. <laughs> Kinda? She has her moments in City of Death, which is going to be the next story. She's trotting around Paris dressed up as a British schoolgirl. <laughs> this is, I think, the episode that I've seen clips from, and I thought that's what she always wore, was a schoolgirl outfit. It's not. Uh, I think a lot of fans would have been happy if she'd been wearing that constantly. But yeah. Well, I'm relieved because I thought it was kind of creepy to have this... <laughs> adult walking around wearing a school uniform so yeah understandably understandably. well if that was if that was the the default costume it's different than circumstantially yeah she she changes her costume <laughs> we are not yet in the era of doctor who where even the companion doesn't get costume changes that's coming soon though <laughs> dear god that's coming soon <laughs> You, wait, you you look forward to it or you fear it? I fear it because mm. it doesn't make any damn sense. I mean, if you've got the TARDIS wardrobe, which we've been told has outfits from every single planet in the cosmos, why would you wear the same damn clothes <laughs> all the time, letting them get dirty and sweaty and stink up the TARDIS? It's basically the Vogue sample closet. <laughs> yes, it's exactly that. And Romana makes good use of it. Yeah. Except for once. At twice, <laughs> When she makes poor use of it? Well, uh, let me see if I remember this correctly. Lala Ward had a lot of input on her own wardrobe, except in her first story. Her first story, she gets an outfit that's obviously designed for Mary Tam, and she looks uncomfortable as hell in it, because that's not that's not a Lala Ward outfit. Whereas Lala Ward, give her a pink Doctor Who outfit, perfect. Mm -hmm. Give her a schoolgirl outfit, perfect. Give her, what would you call those outfits? Uh, fox hunters wear them. You know, the, the red coats? Mm -hmm. give, give her one of those, perfect. She's just great. She's one of the best-looking, best-dressed companions in a long time, except for one notable exception, which she herself said, yeah, I hated that outfit. <laughs> but, yeah, how did we get onto her clothes? I have no idea. <laughs> well, you were saying that she, and during the runway regeneration, she at one point was wearing an outfit that was a very direct counterpart to Tom Baker. At one point she comes out wearing his outfit and then she comes out wearing an outfit that directly references it. Yes, it's... exactly right. Yeah, because when we first see her, she's literally wearing the Princess Astra outfit. So she's just regenerated mm. and somehow, and it's not mentioned on the page because it would be ridiculous, she, she somehow regenerated her clothes, which of course we know the first Doctor did. Well, I actually greatly prefer that to acting like she never played Astra. Yeah, I yeah. do too. Just acknowledge, yes, you recognize this person. This was Princess Astra, but now she's someone else. Yes, <laughs> so, exactly. I, I greatly prefer that than just pretending it's a totally new face. Yeah, and the, the best part is that Lala Ward's performance as Romana is very different from her performance as Astra. So you've got that. You've got an already, well, Mary Tam was too, but you have an experienced actress who's like, I'm stepping into an already established character. I've got to make sure that there's that continuity of that character. And sure enough, there is, you know, damsel in distress moments notwithstanding. Mm -hmm. But even those are part of the character, as we already know, because Romana can't get herself out of every jam. So, yeah. <laughs> Fun times. Um, was there anything else that we liked about the story or anything else that we really didn't like? Like favorite lines. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. I like, uh, you know, that was drilling equipment, wasn't it? That maybe we're stuck in an underground dentist. <laughs> <laughs> and then Life of the Doctor was, quote, getting a certain pleasure from picking out the book's many errors. <laughs> yes. And I guess I should have realized when the astronauts are, were described as being, quote, tall, well-built, and extraordinarily good-looking, I should have figured out that they were artificial life forms. But instead, I thought about my friend describing as a teenager meeting the New Zealand branch of the family for the first time and how the most homely among them would uh, be able to find work as a JCPenney catalog model. <laughs> so my thought is, oh, they're New Zealanders. <laughs> right. they're, they're all tall and good looking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the educational value is I learned a new word, uh, muzzly. 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 M-U-Z-Z-I-O-Y. Oh, when she first wakes up. (laughs) Yes, yes, which I don't understand being something like groggily. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now I know the difference between concrete and semen, which I guess was available knowledge before, but I hadn't (laughs) bothered to look it up. So now I know the difference. Is that concrete has gravel in it. I love that that's a plot point, too. Mm -hmm. They're like, oh, this must have been a city because there's concrete. Yeah, Yeah, but but they, they wouldn't just mixed together geologically like that. Humans would have to do it. It wouldn't just sort of happen right? Uh, geologically. And then the rest of the story was uh, scored in my head by the music of Ludacris. And the doctor <laughs> screamed, keep back, keep back. <laughs> well, Presumably followed up with, you don't know me like that. That is better than what he says on screen because there's a very famous misspeaking by Tom Baker in the story. He's trying to tell the Daleks to back off, and for some reason, he starts off saying something else, so he ends up saying, Now, back off! (laughs) Backle yourself! Backle yourself, yeah, exactly. (laughs) So it's uh, it's really hard to say, but yeah. Oh, the the, the line at the end where I feel like, okay, this is, now Romana is back, even if she's different, is her saying, is asking the doctor, is that why you always win? Because you make so many mistakes. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So there there were some enjoyable parts and lines in here. I I thought that the weakness was the plot, but I also thought that Dix exercised great restraint in not spending any more time on the plot than he was contractually obligated to. Right. I thought that was a good choice on his part. Though he sometimes makes his own mistakes. For instance, when we're told that when Agella is first attacked by Lan, local area network, yeah. and yeah. <laughs> is converted... She's all tangled up in cable. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That she's feeling unbelieving horror when she realizes she's being attacked by one of her own kind. Mm. Shouldn't it be more a case of dispassionate disbelief? Because I didn't even notice that. Yeah. So maybe I wasn't an idiot to be surprised that they were robots. Yeah, the Mavellans definitely seem like they're feeling emotions every once in a while. Well, and their outfits, now that you've seen them and I can never unsee them, are pretty funky, <laughs> mm-hmm. I've got to say. <laughs> and, and I, I actually like them for, for what they are. For robots who did not have a sense of style and aesthetics, they've really gone all out. <laughs> mm-hmm. I always hear the song Whip It whenever I see them because that's the song I overlaid over that clip. But yeah. They've got that feel about them, especially those silver dreadlocks of theirs. Yes. Oh, dear Lord. Anything else you want to say about this? Allison gave some of her favorite lines. I have a couple more. When when Davros is telling the Doctor that they're going to go back to the Dalek ship, and the Doctor says, they will undoubtedly welcome you with open arms, or at least they would if they had them. Open suckers, <laughs> shall we say. <laughs> <laughs> The most loving. Yeah. And then uh, and then he has a line where he says, um, I knew the universe was done for the moment they invented the washing machine. <laughs> it's like, what, what does that even mean? But it, it's, well, who knows? it's so ridiculous. Obviously, the doctor is always wearing the same clothing himself. He probably doesn't need to launder them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, if he always wears the same clothes, he is the one, the person most in need of a laundry machine. Yes. If he's not exactly. taking advantage of the the changes of clothes available to him. And in a couple of seasons, God, are they going to need a laundry machine on the TARDIS? <laughs> oh God! Yeah, horrific. <laughs> when Lan had been shot, 
and the doctor wanted to go look at him. And of course, uh, the, Mo- the Movellans aren't going to let him near the body. And he says, maybe I can help. I'm a doctor. <laughs> Which is, yeah. is ridiculous because most other times he always says, I'm not that kind of doctor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. When does he suddenly have medical skills? Right. Uh, but I feel like we've we've probably covered everything else that, that I had. Okay. Shall we go to Goodreads? Yeah. Let's go. Okay, as we always do, let's go to goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers, then follow up with our own writings. By the way, if you're listening to this podcast and want to have your review featured when we get to an upcoming book and you simply have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review or comment in our Goodreads group by the deadline so that we have a chance to see it before discussing the book ourselves. You may just get your review read out loud here. The average rating for this book on Goodreads out of 5 stars is 3.41, which is slightly higher than the previous one. The reviews from our Goodreads group have again been edited for length, sorry everyone, but keep them coming. In our Goodreads group, Damon gives it 2.5 stars and says more of a novella than a book. Fun read if you have a couple of hours to spare. Quick read, fun read. (laughs) It's neither groundbreaking nor offensive. So that's pretty striking. Also in our Goodreads group, Dave Davies gives it two stars and says, despite being an improvement on the TV version at several points, this isn't a great book. For me, one word sums up the story on screen or on the page, and that is laziness. That laziness starts with Terry Nation's script. The Daleks are often mistaken for robots by people who aren't all that familiar with them, but Nation came up with them, and in their most recent story, it was firmly re-established that they are organic creatures in armored mobility scooters. In this story, they keep getting referred to as robots. The Mavellans, on the other hand, actually are robots, but are frequently very emotional. That previous story, Genesis of the Daleks, is only as good as it was because Terrence Dixon Barry Letts insisted that Terry Nation take the script he'd written away and come up with something original. <laughs> this story should have been much easier to fix, if anyone could have been bothered. There's enough new stuff that the writing by numbers elements aren't quite as obvious as usual. Dix could have repaired the aforementioned faults himself when writing this book, but didn't seem inclined to do so. I wonder if he thought he'd done his part with Genesis, and felt betrayed by Nation's recidivism, although since the script was heavily rewritten by new script editor Douglas Adams, the blame may have been misplaced. There are some improvements in the book. The whole story takes place at night, which almost always makes for a more sinister atmosphere. I didn't mention that. The actual televised story is shot in daytime. But even with these improvements, a disappointing book. And finally, just for the minority opinion, Melissa Jacobson gives it a 3.75 and writes, This was another solid novelization of a classic Who episode. This just happens to be one of my favorite episodes from Doctor Who, so I obviously enjoyed it. The only reason I didn't rate this higher is because it is a novelization, which means that the dialogue and action can feel a bit stilted at times, but overall I had so much fun reading this. I'm glad somebody did. <laughs> so, Dalton, out of five stars, what would you give this? I would I would probably give this a three. It's, it's not the most horrible piece of trash i've ever read there were some enjoying bits between the doctor and romana but i was ultimately kind of disappointed with with the daleks and the story as a whole just really doesn't hold together to form really anything even the last review we're talking about the atmosphere being sinister i didn't really get a feeling of that at all yes it was at night but I, I didn't have any kind of foreboding other than maybe the one time when romana is being tracked but other than that, there's not really a whole lot. But yeah, so three for me. Okay, and Allison? I'm going to go 1.5, which is my, eh, that was fine, rating. <laughs> well, you know, what, what was the uh, the review? It's something like not groundbreaking, not offensive. Yes. I did not resent it. There are parts that I enjoyed. I will not remember a thing after I have had a full night's sleep. I will not remember a thing from this book, I should specify. <laughs> I like Romana. I am interested in new Romana. I'm a little bit weary after our bumper six-part story mm-hmm. that we seem a little directionless now. And I, I, I am absolutely not agitating for a six-part story, but I felt like there was no energy or momentum. We had a returning villain, but it wasn't epic in the way that the return of a former villain should be. Right. And it was also not a sort of fresh and interesting new adventure either. 
Right. I think that's part of... I, I think the lack of having either greater intensity from a returning villain that we already know or something new and interesting and creative has made it feel kind of dead in the water. Yeah. And for me, I'd probably have to give it a three. I was thinking about going higher. I honestly was because I thoroughly enjoyed the book the first time I read it. And when I reread it, I was like, yeah, this still is pretty decent. But I think that's because of the relative shortness of it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't take long to get through it at all. And it's because Terrence Dix has taken a four-parter and chopped it to the bare bones, added some stuff that's actually quite good, but he's still having to polish a turd, essentially. This story <laughs> is not very well regarded amongst Dalek stories. And it shows. It really does. Uh, the new Romana is great. She's even better on the page in some ways, despite all of those moments of being frightened and all that. But yeah, the Daleks suffer. They still suffer on the page. So yeah, uh, three stars. That's all I'm willing to give it. So thank you guys. Mm -hmm. And thank you fellow time travelers for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we'll be looking at both the fan novelization and the official target novelization of a fan-favorite story called by some the best Doctor Who story ever, the novelization of Douglas Adams' script for City of Death. In the meantime, if you liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook at Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast, all in words and no spaces. Also, feel free to follow us on Twitter. We're at DWTargetPC. And subscribe to us via the podcast provider of your choice. If all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email me directly at EmperorDalek at gmail.com with Target Book Club in the subject line so I don't ignore it. Thank you very much for listening. Stay safe and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Bye. Doctor Who Podcast Network.